Right. Welcome to the actual 21st <laughs> session of the Stafford Beer Brain of the Firm Reading Group. Uh, we we were a little bit fast jumping the gun last time, but then uh, maybe that last chapter should have been after this one. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, Beer's introduction to this chapter, uh, chapter 15, uh, The Higher Management, says, uh, the final chapter, 15, is very much a final chapter. I mean that it tries to say some exceedingly important things, which could be understood only by someone who had read the whole book to this point, and it therefore sounds a bit metaphysical. I would like to convince you that it is not really so. If, therefore, you get that far, please try to take the last hurdle before embarking on the case history of Part 4. Indeed we shall. Uh, all right, so the higher management. Um, my general thoughts on this section uh, was that uh, Beer's, Beer's introduction was apt. This is a very interesting chapter, uh, but it is a little bit hard to make sense of. Um, I, I don't think that's because it's poorly written so much as it is just quite uh, abstract concepts to grasp. Um, so, uh, any general thoughts on Chapter 15? Uh, Shane, go ahead. So it seems to be in, in two major sections, um, and that there's there's some kind of like, it's like a victory lap, right? He's kind of going over some of the, the general, very high-level themes, and it gets quite abstract and kind of bong rip. Um, but the, the front half of it is is the um, restating this recursion bit, right? That like it's recursively nested viable systems. Even goes down through the example of like uh, firms being with factories as their system ones, and then the factory with the shop floors as their system ones, and then each shop floor has many teams, and each team has many people. Um, he kind of steps through it explicitly. Um, and then there's the second... I, I, I then I loved on page 230 and 231 the examples of variety of amplifiers and attenuators. Um, I think that table would reward quite a bit of close study um, and thinking about examples that we could, we could pull as well. Um, and then there's the bit about um, the behavioral modes, right? I oh, know there's there's a bit about like kind of swarm intelligence, right? Like this, you're kind of breaking down this recursive thing, so you get a a kind of um, group intelligence emerging. But then the behavior mode stuff is very interesting at the back. Um, that these modes are singular, apparently, and um, one of the big switching functions for this very high level system five stuff is to decide what mode we're in. Are we in are we in growth mode or are we in retreat? Um, and the the implication being that behavior should change drastically in different modes. Um, you should be kind of retooling the organization for different modes. Um, yeah, it's um, I think it's a pretty strong chapter to finish off on. Um, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Matt, go ahead. From the Discord, that, that uh, man, the, 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 this first couple of paragraphs, like uh, a management textbook, right? The, 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 that's what this is supposed to be. You're, you're, you're writing something for, for business students at business school, like the, the, that. The, the very something he's writing something else, which is awesome. But anyway, well, like uh, it, uh, 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 this also made me think that, like you know, 
uh, uh, the, 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 the picture you get of him from uh, Cybernetic Revolutionaries is kind of very different. You know, it, it kind of makes it sound like he was sort of like, you know, not an incredibly weird person already when he went to Chile. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. Matt, you got cut off there for that uh, last bit. Uh, so if you could just re- repeat yourself uh, a little bit. I think you cut out of the part of being, him being an unusual person before he went to Chile. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and also, uh, was, um, yeah, and, uh, um, yeah, it's also, also yeah, it's really, really interesting and, and also like really breezy, like a uh, 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 chapter. And I was also thinking that, uh, that, that this one kind of, um, uh, yeah, it, it kind of also shows like the influence of, uh, you know, of uh, kind of like uh, uh, spiritual models um, uh, on, on the DSM because uh, you know mm-hmm. we started about higher management, but like most of the schematizations that I've seen, uh, I, I know like in uh, in like the um, the multi part soul in in uh uh Kabbalistic models and uh, um the uh and I know in um on in like like chakras and stuff there's usually one that's like like a meta level that's like it's kind of not really part of you like you know it's it's uh it's uh it's it's really part of the divine in in, in, some, in some way or another and uh yeah this uh, I, I saw the influence right sure yeah no I, I think that's uh, it's an apt observation um Jeremy go ahead yeah, I, a lot of the ideas in this chapter are influenced by Warren McCullough and uh, Maturana and Varela. Um, that's all the biological evolutionary stuff is coming from them. Beer around this time or a little after this wrote the introduction to Maturana and Varela's uh, autopoiesis and cognition. And there's a lot of echoes of what he wrote there in this chapter. Um, uh, basically, Beer felt that there were consciousnesses above the individual consciousness, and that each recursion was a form of consciousness. And that was such a radical idea that Maturana and Varela, who wrote a lot about cognition in these processes, was kind of horrified by this. And it's funny because in the introduction to autopoiesis and cognition, Beer posits this very radical idea that each level of recursion in the viable system is a form of consciousness, is a cognitive entity. And Maturana and Varela say, we completely disagree with this but we were so impressed by this argument that we're letting this be the introduction to our book, even though we disagree with it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I think Beer's uh, point there is, is well taken. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, well, we'll get into it more when we read the, the, the chapter itself. Uh, Jeremy, just as a note, uh, there's noise on your line. Um, we're getting stat, uh, like, a static or a buzz. Yeah, a buzz, exactly. Even when I'm muted? Uh, no, no, just when you're, when you're audible. Yeah. Okay. Um, awesome. So, uh, let's get into it, uh, the higher management. 
with System 5, we have come to the end of the hierarchy of systems we undertook to consider. Why should this be the end? After all, we have become used to the idea that every system is embedded in a higher-order metasystem, which alone is competent to handle the structure of the lower-order system. We know from considerations of mathematical logic, or metamathematics, that the formal language in which we define any system is likely to be incomplete. It will result in undecidable propositions which can be answered only in the meta-language appropriate to a higher-order system. Then we seem in logic to be committed to an infinite regression of languages and systems, whereas in both physiology and management we come to a necessary stop. This is not because the theories of logic are, after all, defective, but because all physiology is limited by a finite anatomy. Once a system has been defined according to a particular taxonomy, it must reach terminal boundaries prescribed by that definition. For example, if the brain is defined as that mass of tissues held within the head, then the terminal boundary is necessarily the skull. Had we chosen to use the taxonomy of atomic physics to describe the brain, however, we should have found that the electron in the brain is not bounded by the skull at all. The probability that defines that electron may manifest itself somewhere else in the universe at any moment. The terminal boundaries, then, are functions of the taxonomy employed rather than of reality, quote-unquote. That is precisely why they are always logically unsatisfactory. The brain in the firm must therefore expect to be confronted by undecidable propositions at the moment where they run out of meta-languages in which to understand them. Man's problem and preoccupation with the nature of his own existence in the universe is surely of this kind. And the firm's policies will always in the end be short of or metasystemic guidance. In neither case does this simply mean that we cannot acquire enough contextual information. It means that we are bereft of the tools for comprehension. So, uh, uh, big, big Hegel vibes from all of this. Uh, we, we definitely see, in a sense, Hegel's response to, uh, Kant's antinomies, uh, in, in what Buhr is saying here. Um, which, you know, just to get into that a little bit more, uh, in detail, essentially the, the, the lack, the logical lack is in reality, right? There is no lack of information that is the problem. It is, it is inherent in reality that once you have a def, a definition of some level of analysis, there is uh, a a lack of tools for comprehension that is inherent in that. Uh, when you put an end to the infinite regress or progress of of recursion at some point, you are creating a gap in reality. Um, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, this this bit with the uh, the example of the skull uh, reminded me of um, something I think we encountered way back in the first couple of chapters of the book, where I think um, I sort of remarked the, on the thing where the brainstem mediates between the 
bod- information contact between the body and the higher brain. Uh, but then it seems that the the higher brain or like the consciousness mediates contact between the organism and like a social brain. There's this kind of like mediation layers and like translation layers and meta language translation layers that are going on there. Um, but, and so like in the example here, he's got this thing where like if we if we define the Essentially, if we define the brain or the head in a certain way, we, there's a natural boundary that's drawn by just the the way we draw the boundary, right? Like we've decided that that's what it is. But from like a quantum perspective, it's fucking nonsense. Like these like energy flows are constantly shuttling in and out of of that boundary. But similarly, for like inf- from an informational perspective or from like a social informational perspective, the main show there is probably the information interchange between brains and not so much the individual skulls themselves. Um, which, you know, is, is this other kind of like shifting away from the kind of Kantian, like ultra subjectivity sort of thing towards kind of like recognizing that maybe the main event isn't located within the individual skull in this kind of like lib bourgeois sense, maybe social processes and social cognition are a, are a very big and real thing, um, that happen to use these individual brain nodes. But, um, you know, to, 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 to locate thought solely within the skull would be a mistake because it does, it does flow across boundaries, similar to how the electrons do. Right. Um, well, the, yeah, the, the, the constraints that we put, the identity that we define uh, is like simultaneously kind of arbitrary and also necessary. Um, it's not as though our, organi- our, our definition as an organism uh is in fact, you know, an arbitrary decision. It is given to us, but in the logical sense, it is arbitrary, right? It's in a biological sense, it's not. So we're going to get into that a little bit more here, which probably does like explain somewhat of like why it is that when when we shift our attention from this like individual perspective to a group or social informational perspective, we get the sense that we're losing something that like, but because we've needed to redraw the boundaries, something is necessarily lost. It's kind of like, there's no, there's no like ultimate global perspective from which we could understand everything. Um, to right. shift, shift around we, understanding around means necessarily losing some part of some analysis in order to gain some other part. And that, that can, that can be kind of frightening, right? Because it, for, for a lot of people, it's very weird to think that there are, general social processes which are somewhat indifferent to the individuals involved because it's, it's you start to tiptoe towards some very dangerous territory there however it's probably just logically and analytically necessary to entertain those thoughts and hopefully hold them in 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 with the sort of value of the individual um simultaneously well it's exactly as you said when you move from the logical perspective to the uh biological one uh you are losing something but you are also gaining something, right? Because the peculiarities of the human perspective are not actually expressed in logic. Uh, the, 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 the lack is inherent to reality. There is no one perspective that is going to give you a total picture, which is what, what you're saying here. Um, okay, so despite all this, the problem remains. Although we are constrained by anatomical boundaries to stop somewhere, why stop here? The answer was given in Chapter 4 during the discussion of heuristics when, point 11, it was said that the ultimate criterion of viability must indeed be the capability to survive. 
This is both a physiological and ecological criterion, and certainly not a logical one. Right? Uh, this is, uh, I guess, you're refuting that uh, old argument about uh, uh, suicide being illogical. <laughs> um, in logic, we can we can do things that are contrary to uh, our 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 physiological criteria. Um, this bu book has been wholly about the viable system. There must be criteria of independent viability, even though any system turns out to be Im embedded in a larger system and is never completely isolated completely autonomous, or completely free. For just as we recognize the separate identity of even inanimate objects such as stones, so we recognize the viable system as having such an identity and distinguish it from the systems which abut and enclose it, precisely in terms of life and death. The criteria used here are therefore neurocybernetic criteria. A set of logical criteria is developed in the companion volume, The Heart of the Enterprise. So, I have no idea what that looks like, but it is there. When the viable system dies, it continues a physical existence and an observable interaction with contiguous systems. But it has lost its identity, precisely in terms of its coherence as a viable entity. We should say this of a firm as we do of man. When a firm is first taken over by a larger enterprise, shareholders and employees are likely to be assured that the identity of their firm will be preserved. Its name will continue. After all, it is worth money in terms of goodwill. The board will continue to exercise complete control. The realities are otherwise. The goodwill of the larger corporation is worth more than that of the smaller. So the firm's original name is increasingly subsumed within the corporate name and is lost altogether after a few years. As to the board, it soon learns that its freedom of action is heavily constrained. It must stop being a directorate and become a management group. In short, the firm has become one of the units of a new whole, a system one. Despite this, that firm, just like the other units of the corporation, must itself remain viable and the industry of which the corporation is a unit must remain viable too. Thus, to set the cutoff point on the infinite logical regression of metasystems at the ecological condition of viability solves the problem of identity, although it does not solve the problem of the undecidable. We may not enrich the organization of the system we have studied, whether the brain or the firm, by adding new levels of metasystem. They are not required to explain viability. Hence, elaboration of the model results in the identification of subsystems and even of transsystems, as we might call systems that partake of the character of more than one system at a time. It does not result in the identification of a new metasystem, a system six. Then it looks as though all viable organisms are singularly vulnerable at the cutoff point where the logic runs out. They are. But because we humans are self-conscious beings, there is one trick left. We may try to stand outside ourselves, outside our brains and our firms, and to survey the thing that we are. 
This operation for a man is often called an examination of conscience. And indeed, I have heard a particular official in various companies referred to as the conscience of the firm. But I prefer to talk about this faculty as the higher management. All right, so comments on this section? Uh, Tom, go ahead. And then Shane. And then Boast. Yeah, just a very quick one. I, I like the, the, the idea of talking about uh, how uh, viable systems can continue to have a physical existence. It's like uh, my father was working, he managed a, a farmer's co-op uh, creamery in uh, where I'm from, like 25 years or something. And one of the big uh, agribusiness conglomerates eventually like bought them out. And so they, they bought out, bought them out. And the very next day, they shut down production, closed the factory, and and fired everybody. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they they were viable, and then they were taken over, and they were like subsumed, non-viable, just totally destroyed. Just for to share, instantly non-viable. Uh... Yeah, they didn't last one day. Literally, not one day. Wow, amazing. Um, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, I think I think in in the when I read that sentence, um, I was immediately thinking of like the kind of the corpse that's left behind after an organism dies. That it's still in like material, energetic, thermodynamic exchange with its environment, but its its autonomy is gone. Um, so there's there's a sort of um, and similarly when when one of these systems is digested by a by a larger system, all of its structures get like slotted into place somewhere. In um, inside one of the organs of the thing, but it, it might lose all of its own, it, it loses its own agency, even though it physically still exists. Um, so that, like, the, in this sense, death is not physical obliteration, but the the loss of the uh, the closed loop of um, or the semi closed loop of of autonomy. Um, uh, one other remark: it's it's very interesting to see that at the very end of the book, he finally mentions the notion of trans systems. Um, because I think throughout a lot of Beer's writing, we would get the impression that this model is like a perfect tree. It's everything will be slotted into the into its position in the tree, right? It's a uh, you know, and there's there's only uh, parent-child relationships, and there's no like cross relationships. But right, right at the end here, it's like, oh no, yeah, like trans systems happen. Like a system might participate in many systems. It might, in fact, participate across recursions. Um, one of the examples might be that you know people participate in a lot of different systems. You know, they participate in their workplace and in a family, probably at a minimum, um, a church perhaps, and they're they're like switching hats between those things. Um, but yeah, it's it's just very interesting that this gets kind of slotted in here at the end uh, without getting much elaboration. Right, definitely. Uh, Boast, go ahead. So I'll admit I'm kind of having a bit of a problem understanding what he's getting at here because it seems that he's trying to essentially draw a line past which any further analysis is a waste of time, recursive, um, or just provides information that's unnecessary. But at the same time, I'm also like, I, I feel like I am gathering some stuff, like in terms of how he's talking about scope. Like after a, a viable system has run its course, it now is something else. It's it's the scaffolding, it's the leftovers. Um, but it's when he starts talking about identity that really threw me off because it's hard for me to also think of him drawing a self-contained unit of analysis, if that is the VSM, um, when 
I can, I, I feel like it might just be personal experience, but I've seen things change in identity while not changing in viability. Um, I feel like a, a very poor example of this might be Theseus' ship, where Theseus' ship over time loses its identity, but you can still take it out on the water and it'll do its thing. Um, so yeah, it's, it's like exactly like where is that line in the sand and what's, what's, uh, Beer's like intent? Or I guess like what scopes is Beer concerning himself with in drawing that line in the sand and saying like this is, we're not going to add more meta systems. We're not going to add them above or below the system. Um, and is that only a, a line in the sand with respect to space or is he also talking about like ongoing processes, like the scope of time? Uh, so I think the important thing to pay attention to is that he says it's a physiological and ecological criterion and not a logical one. So if you're talking about the ship of Theseus, that's actually a logical analysis, um, right? Uh, and in physiological terms, we ship of Theseus ourselves all the time, right? <laughs> we, 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 we do, we do remake our bodies. Uh, so that our cells are largely replaced over time. Uh, but we maintain our identities. And that is, uh, that is part of what Beer is saying here is that, like, um, the organism maintains an identity over time, uh, by, you know, changing and adapting, but still nonetheless maintaining that identity. And if it does not maintain that identity, it is, dead right it, it dies uh it's it's gone so um you need to just kind of like i think accept that the survival criterion and the nature of the organism is in some way extra logical right it, it it's you can't specifically define the boundary of it in logic but nonetheless it operates as a motivation for that organism to continue its own existence and so what beer is is saying is like when he says um we may not enrich the organization of the system we have studied whether the brain or the firm by adding new levels of meta system they are not required to explain viability. So if we do a logical analysis, we could increase the levels of metasystem, and we, we probably should, right? Or we, we would need to, because these, these metasystems continue forever, infinitely. But that isn't going to help us explain what the organism is in the sense of its desire to reproduce itself, which is what we are mainly concerned with here. I, I hope that helps a little bit in terms of saying like, yeah, the, the, the great chain of being goes up and down forever, but the, uh, the organism does not. Um, okay. Uh, let's go to Tom and then Shane. Yeah. Just like kind of thinking like, you know, say the, I was uh, camping there and these goddamn midges were biting, biting us when we we're trying to put our tent away. You know, I'm thinking like of a midge, right? Does it, like the organism, the system of a midge, does it need to know about, uh, say, for example, um, you know, astrophysics? 
does it help its viability in any sense? No, maybe us, even as humans, does astrophysics actually help our existence in any sense? That there are some level, it's a kind of like a practical cutoff level where I think you just, you kind of, beer is making the case to just like, yeah, just we're grand. We'll go with that, lads. <laughs> we'll try and uh, we'll, we'll try and work on that basis. I don't know if I'm being extremely crude, but that's kind of how I. I mean, yeah. There's uh, it, it's certainly true that this model implies that like there is a level of comprehension we can reach as organisms that is not exhaustive of reality. That's just this is just a fact, and it's true of a midge as much as it is true of a human being or. You know, an amoeba he mentions later in the chapter. Um, uh, Shane, go ahead. So it's, it's kind of an argument for imminence, right, in uh, in this analysis or in an understanding, or to, to avoid reaching for transcendent explanations or transcendent justifications for things. So, you know, when we're trying to understand why the organism tries to persist, it doesn't actually add anything to say, well, you know, it, it is the will of God that the organism persists, because it's just gesturing to a supposed higher level of logic that doesn't actually add anything. Um, so that like at a, at a given level of recursion, we should try to understand the system in its own terms with reference to an externality that is just everything else. Um, and that we, we kind of can't stack up justifications forever because uh, they, they just become meaningless. Right. It's like to say, does it add anything to our understanding of physiology to describe structural oppression in society no right it doesn't add anything to our understanding of physiology specifically it under it enriches our understanding of society and the inter interaction between society and the individual but that's external to physiology um jake go ahead yeah i think i to me i, I think of it as like you know like you've all you've all kind of described i think that it doesn't add anything more like to add another meta system doesn't add anything more to our understanding of what the system is or what the system does. But I think also like, you know, you could conceivably think of a higher level system that's or a higher part of the system that like affects the systems below it, but doesn't, you know, but isn't like God or something. But then in that case, it would make more sense to think of to include more of what is above that into an another viable systems model. So it's like you're, you know, you can take a step back from the individual, but then at that point, you've got to take into account all these other things, which make up another sort of viable system, if you think of like the ecosystem or whatever. Um, but then apart from that, you know, I thought just like his, his description of like a system that dies or like, you know, a system that lost its identity really makes me like reminds me of like all of these like various micro sects on left, you know, in the US that like, they have these organizational models, they have these systems, and yet they don't really have this sort of self-reflective part of the system pipe to actually look at themselves and think like, okay, are we doing the thing that is like accomplishing the goal that we set out to do? And it's because it's kind of, it's like, it's like a chicken with its head cut off, you know, it's just like running around. It's got all these organs and systems that do things, but there's no like actual conscious direction. Um, and I guess in those cases, it's like, there's a, uh, uh, facility, like there's a, uh, like, I don't know what to call it, you know, like, like a fake sense of direction. Like there's a sense that there's a sense of direction, but it's not true because of the sort of intricacies of these, the way that these things operate where, you know, if it actually were to try and change the direction of the, the whole, uh, organization, 
it would split. It splits. You know, it splits into another one because the actual people who are holding onto the power don't accept the change as much, or you know, and so we're left with a million different like Maoist sects or whatever. Um, but yeah, that that's something I kind of thought of when I read this. Yeah, uh, to sort of get to that question of about you know God, you can just kind of think about, for example, like when when Kant talks about the transcendental subject. There's only one transcendental subject because the transcendental subject is purely rational, which means it doesn't admit any uh, internal contradiction, um, which means that the transcendental subject or God has no individuality. So, you know, the sort of physiology is admitted from that from that entity. Um, so it's it's like. Yeah, you could go all the way up to the grand unity of all things, but that will tell you literally nothing about what it is to be an organism. It's, it's, you're, this is completely in opposition to that. Um, so anyway, uh, let's, let's go back to management and quit talking about theology here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. So, um, the term the higher management was introduced in chapter one by analogy with the subject known as the higher arithmetic. It does not at all refer to seniority compared to the phrase top management, which makes it a rather poor term because it sounds as though it does. However, there is no accepted or readily coined term for this concept, which is indeed sufficiently subtle that any term will be misunderstood by those who are not following that, the argument. We may not say meta-management because we are bound to include everything we know and understand about the control of the viable system in System 5. This is not, then, a metasystemic activity, but almost extra-systemic. If we are not careful, it will sound as though we lay claim to mystical insights, as indeed do those who talk about conscience in the human condition. The higher management is about a policy calculus, above all about the nature of the viable system. For if, as we have been arguing, viability is the criterion of identity and of organizational structure, then it is vital that our whole notion of managing does not do violence to it. The beginning of wisdom here seems to me this very recognition of identity. This uh, idea recurs in all branches of modern management thinking, but I do not reckon that managers recognize the underlying unity here. Let us take some examples. The integrity and dignity of the single human being has been reasserted by behavioral scientists who have studied organizations in recent years. Management has, in consequence, been led to a new perception of the need for participation in affairs by people who used to be regarded simply as servants, or at, at best as cogs in the machine. The human being has, its, has identity. The human being is a viable system. Secondly, consider the way in which management has been led to develop the organizational handling of cost centers and profit centers, headed by their own managers, who are held accountable. That notion of accountability is the cutoff point. These centers are viable systems. 
Thirdly, there is an undoubted emphasis these days on decentralization within the very large enterprise. The major unit of the enterprise is a viable system. Fourthly, we should note how, as enterprises have grown larger and more complicated, and have turned themselves into corporations and conglomerates, they have begun to lose their sense of identity. This is why there is a contemporary emphasis on determining written objectives, on reorganization at the top, on experimental high-level managerial units such as the, quote, president's office, and on corporate planning, my italics, or sorry, corporate planning, <laughs> uh, as opposed to, you know, sectoral planning. These activities have all emerged as a response to the need for, to reassert coherence and identity in the firm, because the firm is a viable system too. If we wish to test the generality of this emergent generalization, we may look at other organizations altogether. A trade union sees itself as a viable system because it wishes to survive. There are many threats to its identity, most of which are associated with changes in technology which render the original objects of the union obsolete. Unfortunately, the union response is, on the whole, to reassert its identity within the obsolete framework, thereby sizably increasing the threat. That, however, is an accusation of mistaken strategy. The legitimate aim of survival is the same as before. New nations, it seems to me, make similar mistakes, but again, there is no mistaking the evidence of a need to assert identity as the prerequisite of survival. That leads to what I call the airline syndrome, whereby a young country must have its own national airline, whether doing so makes economic sense or not. The same phenomenon, in another guise, may be observed in mature nations which feel threatened. We follow our technological noses into any project, however expensive and irrelevant, which reasserts identity and thereby offers evidence that we have indeed survived. Examples of this are the moon landing by the United States and the Concorde project of Britain and France. To recapitulate, there is an ecological answer given in nature to the abstract logical problem presented by an infinite regress of metasystems. It is the identification of the viable system, its determination to be itself and to survive. Then we must expect that an organization of viable systems into some large viable whole will be organizationally recursive. This is the general statement of the point argued ad hoc before. After all, we reproduce figure 27 within the units of figure 27. All right. Uh, so, um, you know, we could certainly see uh, build the wall as another one of these ridiculous projects by a mature state that sees itself threatened. Um, uh, Shane, go ahead. So we've got some nice Nietzsche here, right? We've got some will to power going on, <laughs> which is fun. Um, the trade union example is interesting, right? Because it's it's a sort of rephrasing of a thing that we're all kind of familiar with, right? This um, the, the the trade union becomes a thing, right? Big A, big T, a thing, um, and it needs to reassert its identity, but it ends up doing it in the framework that exists rather than projecting forwards, and then is integrated into world capitalism, right? The trade unions become the HR departments of of um, the uh, post-war um, 
factory regime. Um, yeah, I think I think it's what Lenin called a trade union consciousness. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. Yeah. And you can yeah. you can see there that like uh, on on a level, it's like the, the the sort of that course of action makes a sense, right? Because it, it is reasserting, hey, look, we're we're a union. We we do this. This is our thing. This is our identity. But then there's really no there's no guarantee. Like so here we have this thing that like ident- asserting identity is a prerequisite for survival, but there's absolutely no guarantee that doing that will go in your favor. Um, in fact, you can have these bong-rip fucking crazy projects like uh, Uganda having a fucking space program or whatever to assert its identity that go nowhere and squander fucking resources. Um, so there's, there's a kind of psychopathological problem here that, like, yes, the organism must assert its identity, but there's, there's just no guarantee whatsoever that that will pay off in the way that it wants to. Now, the alternative to that trade union consciousness is to, like, see how you're going to evolve with the real movement, right? That, like, the real movement of history and the, of the proletariat is constantly developing. And you might get to a point where you have to think, shit, this trade, this trade union stuff that we are familiar with isn't cutting it anymore. We're going to have to mutate into something different. But that's scary because it means different. And we like identity. I like me. I don't like different, you know, this kind of stuff. Um, and it plays out all across all levels, right? Like we, we organism, like human beings do this all the fucking time. Um, human organizations seem to do it all the time. Um, they have their own strange way of uh, working through these kind of identity crises. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Jake and then Matt. Yeah, the, the uh, I think this is a very interesting, like, I was just thinking of when I read this paragraph of the, there's a recent, uh, Revolutionary Left Radio episode where he talked about dock workers and the dock workers unions that, like, have managed to survive this long because of the position they're in. That's, like, such a key choke point in logistics. And the way that he was talking about, like, um, there was, like, some union and dock workers union in, like, San Francisco where the way that the, like, compromise they came to uh, with like the bosses due to the you know all these new technologies of like shipping crates and stuff is like that the the older workers will retire earlier in exchange for continuing to like pay the same amount so that way over time it's like they're kind of making themselves more obsolete but it, they've bought time basically but i i think and so i think that really it it really is interesting to think about like so what does viability look like and how do you change in response to these these things because I think yeah so many t- so so often you know uh, bigger organizations like you know even things like nation states and stuff have just capitulated to like well you know we'll just build up our productive capacity and then be like a vi- you know be recognized as just as viable and just as authoritative as like any other nation and you know especially when you think about like the socialist attempts to do this is like that was their thinking about it in the sort of overall meta system of like world capitalism, you know, and like, therefore the only way of asserting themselves as viable being like through productive forces and through capitalist relations, you know? And so it's like thinking back to what Jer- I think Jeremy said the last, last uh, session where like thinking of what does a proletarian system five look like, you know, it's like, how do you assert viability and identity in a way that's not like through the means by which capitalist firms and nations do that, you know, I'm not sure what that would look like, but it's interesting to think about. Right. It's, it's precisely the problem of socialism in one country, right? 
you're you're trying to assert a proletarian identity in a capitalist world system. The meta system is capitalist. So what do you do? Um, uh, okay, Shane, and then Matt, and then Boast. Let's go ahead. Something Jake just said kind of set off something in my brain there that um. This like it's even the thing like a mutation, right? Like the the trade unions find, or some union finds they're on the downward slope. How do they how do they rejuvenate or whatever? And it's it's maybe worth looking back at organisms, right? That like uh, organisms die, and there are successive generations of them. Um, but uh, species and like groups of organisms survive by passing along information. Some of them do it purely genetically. Um, there's a long, slow process of recoding genes to pass along information into the future. Um, other much more successful organisms like ourselves and social social organisms use culture and language and teaching to pass information patterns forward so that even though one one generation dies, um, their, their, their successive generations can inherit uh, thought patterns and can inherit behavioral patterns and take those into the future. So we may have to, I guess the socialist sort of movement is extremely young, and we've only really had one or two generations of cycles of this stuff. Um, but we're very much stuck in this kind of like melancholic sort of mourning process of mourning the apparent and very real deaths of these organizations. Um, but we may have to admit that maybe keeping the IWW going forever was never going to be a thing, much in the same way that Grandad just isn't going to hang around forever. And if we admit that, then we have to learn instead how to pass along information patterns and behavioral patterns, um, and to live with the um, degeneration and, and death of, of our organizations, such that, you know, like for a tribe or whatever, the individual people die constantly and are born constantly, but the, the tribe persists. Um, we got to maybe think on that level and not, uh, not get too hung up on the expiration of a particular union. Because if, if it's all hung up on a particular union, it's going, it's going to die. And so we can't pin our flag to that one mast. We can't put all our, all our eggs in one basket. Maybe this notion of like a single party to like contain everything is, is complete nonsense as well, because it would mean putting all your eggs into... Imagine if a species consisted of precisely one organism that held all of the information about the species. There was no, no transfer across generations, there was no genetic differentiation whatsoever. It'd be fucked, because like, an elephant will come along and step on it and end the fucking species, you know? Um, I think differentiation and spreading out of information across independent systems that act independently across viable systems seems to be a general feature of life that we should probably get on board with and uh you know have 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 a have a powerful socialist movement that doesn't rely on any particular one of its components uh succeeding uh to to such a massive extent right uh okay matt and then boast and then tom yeah, yeah, I mean, what, what's, what's, what the, the thought that is, is that, that yeah, like, uh, you can see how, um, uh, uh, yeah, like, uh, the, the, the trade union example is a very good example of, like, how, yeah, like, uh, you know, System 5, like, you know, crashing in, into System 3, you know, you, you have these institutions that actually are still kind of doing, like, the things that they kind of do, like, automatically. Um, uh, uh, any of the, like, institutions, like, uh, uh, yeah, like, if, if uh, you know, you really get hit dead to rights as an employer with, uh, you know, a, a direct violation of the National Labor uh, Relations Act, like, you actually are still in trouble. Like, uh, like all this stuff, like, it, uh, on a, you know, on, on, on a, um, 
uh, yeah, on, on, on that level that doesn't really require any active strategizing. It's still doing its thing. It's just not actively strategizing anymore. You know, uh, it's fallen into, into that kind of trade union consciousness. But the, the other thing is that, like, you know, um, a, a functional system one to three is actually still kind of a rare thing. Like, like we, we, we don't have like the, the reproduction thing down in the same kind of way that, uh, uh organisms do, or I guess even capitalist firms do. And, you know, even capitalist firms, like, uh, you know, anytime you start a new one, like it's, it's understood that most of them are just going to be destroyed. And so like, yeah, in general, like, like, like uh, uh, I, I would generally f- f- favor stuff that's more about like, uh, you know, getting the old CIE, CIU, CIO, uh, unions, you know, like the ILWU and stuff, uh, uh, you know, uh, up and running again. Um, uh, uh, just because like, you know, the, most things are just going to fizzle out and it's, it's just so hard to get anything like running at all, much less, uh, and yeah, you know, l- l- getting something running and also, you know, being able to be farsighted and actively strategizing, you know, cause the capital is strategizing. The workers movement isn't necessarily strategizing and behaving, uh, uh, coherently in the same kind of way. Well, and the, the common turn was a complete disaster. Right. Uh, so that was an attempt to do that, but it was very uh, flawed. Uh, Boast, go ahead. So I'm definitely still just getting hung up on the way that he's using words in this. Um, but I, I, the hair on the back of my neck stood up because he keeps talking about things and really being firm about wanting to center them in like a, an ecological answer that's provided in nature. Um, but then he'll just casually go back and forward between talking about identities in terms of how a group acts, which like there's not groups in nature in the way that he's kind of referring to nature. Because if we want to think about nature as like a deer, a deer has an identity of a deer. It's going to do deer things. It'll never not do deer things. And then we think of the, uh, the union example. It's like, well, yeah, a union is going to be a union. It's going to have the identity of a union while it's only going to react in manners that a union would. Um, that sense of identity seems to be completely like absent of our sense of consciousness that turns that, that, that lack of, or that, um, inefficiency of identity into a crisis. So when the union realizes that, uh, reproducing all of its old, uh, methodology is not going to work in its survival, it has an identity crisis, but the deer never has an identity crisis. Um, the cargo cult never has an identity crisis because they keep, well, they kind of do, but they keep reproducing the same reactions without ever having that system five that can then be like, okay, wait a second, we're just aping all of this stuff without actually, um, you know, reifying our identity in any form. So it's kind of got me wondering if, um, at least the way that he's talking about it, identity and uh, system five might stop there from being an ecological answer, so to say, given that we're kind of the only ones that can have self-awareness of our identity and then decide to make strategic choices surrounding that identity, if that makes sense. Uh, so this is a point that he addressed earlier in the book, actually. Um, he says that when designing the VSM, he could have taken any, uh, viable organism and he could have taken an ecology as his example. But the reason why he didn't take an ecology was because an ecology is prone uh, is very prone to swinginess because it doesn't have any foresight whereas a human being does have foresight and so he's he's not saying that the foresight is inherent to all organisms he's saying that that foresight is a capacity that leads to more viability and so he took the human being as his paradigm case um 
So I, I, I hope that helps to, uh, clarify, uh, the, the, the approach he's taking. Um, it, you know, again, he does admit that there are sort of degrees of consciousness, uh, and they are different from organism to organism, but viability in the ideal does entail a sense of identity and an ability for foresight. Um, because it leads to better survival strategies. Uh, and we will see that, you know, when we go through these different modes that the organism can go into, uh, a deer, in a sense, does have a system five. Because a deer can panic, you know. That is a, that is a behavior that beer ascribes to the system five. But it doesn't have foresight in that way, right? Um, yeah, you describe it as more viability help a lot. Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, no, there's definitely more or less viability. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, Tom, go ahead. I would say a deer probably does have foresight. Like, you ever try and, like, stalk a deer? Those fuckers gone like a shot. Um, but uh, not that I've ever hunted a deer. So I'm just talking what I've seen on films. But uh, um, just getting to, like, a, a little example about, like, the importance of identity. I was working in a place and they were all, uh, I was doing some like, uh, statistical data kind of analysis stuff. And we had a, our team will use this programming language SAS and like a standard in the industry at the time. And the, the mon- the management basically wanted to cut cost because the licenses for each SAS seat were incredibly expensive. It was like a proprietary system, really expensive. So they decided to basically try to get us use an R. Um, and so they said they brought down, like, like you had like training, training and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, pretty much like all the analysts refused <laughs> kind of point blank to use R. They said they're going to quit if they use it because in their heads, even though there's, it's kind of arbitrary, you know, one is more object oriented than another or whatever, but like, it was kind of arbitrary. They saw themselves as SaaS analysts and they couldn't be fucked. They didn't want to see themselves as an, as an R analyst or an S plus analyst. So, uh, so they just wasted a whole load of money on all the training and all these, uh, uh, licenses for the corporate version of R called S plus. So it was just like, just like a really stupid management idea. They didn't understand identity. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you're, you're right, Tom, that a, a deer does have a certain amount of foresight. It just doesn't have a like five year plan level of foresight. I mean, maybe we don't either. We just delude ourselves into thinking we do. Uh, all right. Um, I, I guess, yeah, we'll get into that with that discussion of Marx and the earth. Cause there's some things about Marx says about organisms in this regard. <laughs> um, Shane, go ahead. On the, on the deer thing, I have this, this fun, fun little story that I think does have something to teach us about adaptability and learning and foresight and all this sort of thing. Where, um, way back when I lived in Ireland, just before I moved over, before I moved to Scotland, um, and a friend back there and we, we, we went to like, I think it was Photo Wildlife Park or whatever. And we were wandering around and there was the big fence and on the other side of it is the proper deer, like reservation or whatever. And you can't, you can't go in there. But the deer are just wandering right up to the fence and stuff. And, and there with, um, with with Carolyn, he's like, look at those deer. They they just have no fear, no fear of us at all. I was like, yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. 
he says, I'd love to go over there and just throw a fucking brick at them or something. And I looked at him, I was like, what the? And he's like, not out of malice, but just to demonstrate that there are people in the world who would do that to them. <laughs> Carol was a rather an unusual character, but it was, it was quite funny. It's like, just to demonstrate that there, this is a thing that could happen to you. So I'm going to make it happen to teach you that it could happen, <laughs> right? That like the deer had gotten far too comfortable with with, with people. <laughs> a very strange way of thinking. That's, that's the deer system for at work, right? Uh, what is what is a predator? What is not a predator? Bastards. Uh, <laughs> 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 All right, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, uh, to, 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 to expand on on the on the deer a bit, yeah, uh, I, I, yeah, I, 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 there, there, there's there's some like illustrated thing, thing things in there, um, uh, just because like yeah, like deer do migrate for uh, 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 for instance, and uh, you know like they'll do different things in like different seasons, and like it's not even necessarily just like a kind of like a greedy algorithm type thing where they, they they just like follow the grass, like you know like they do have a sense of like oh okay you know like like the weather's changing you know like uh, uh you know and, and then they start moving to like when you know wherever they go like 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 when they do that, and so. There is a level of, of like sort of higher order like parameters that that, that they use to like adapt to uh, situations and uh, you know like, like like change their like overall like policies. Anyway, even like even like amoebas like like do like 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 they'll like respond to little changes in a um uh in in like you know pH or whatever with with stuff that actually is like you know that happens on like a much longer time scale than you know what the amoeba normally does. Indeed, yeah. Uh, these these qualities are sort of inherent in all organisms, but they do manifest in, in just different ways. Um, uh, all right. Uh, so we will maybe do a little bit of this next section here and then wrap up. Uh, so recursive. So uh, Bure says the, you know, re we reproduced figure 27 within the units of figure 27. Hence, the recursive system theorem. If a viable system contains a viable system, then the organizational structure must be recursive. So this is a, this is a general theorem, because if, it, if the subsystem is not viable, then obviously it is uh, not recursive either, because, you know... <laughs> a subunit of a viable system that is itself viable must be, in fact, recursive. Um, this theorem finally validates the five-tier hierarchic model we've been using all along. If the viable firm is organized like this, so is its major viable unit. If the unit is organized like this, so is its viable subunit. The individual factory, for example. If the factory is organized like this, so is the individual viable shop, of which the basic unit is the section, of which the basic unit is the man. The shop, the section, and the man, then, are all organized like this. And we know that the man is so organized, since that is where the bottle came from in the first place, uh, from, from the human being. The theory of numbers, called the higher arithmetic, deals with the properties of natural numbers rather than the numbers themselves. A famous exponent, the late Professor Davenport, notes that a peculiarity of the higher arithmetic is the great difficulty which has often been experienced in proving the simple general theorems which had been suggested, suggested quite naturally by numerical evidence. 
The higher management has the same problem in recognizing its own general theorems, of which I have just proposed one. That is, I think, because people look in the wrong place for the threads which unite organizational theory. The major thread unraveled by management cybernetics is the thread of variety, its regeneration and proliferation, its reduction and amplification, its filtering and control. For variety is the very stuff and substance of modern management in a newly complicated milieu, just as physical matter was the stuff and substance with which our forefathers had to wrestle. When we make our models and classify our insights in terms of variety, we perceive what management is really about, whatever the variety sources may be. At all times, the management process seeks to procure requisite variety in stabilizing the enterprise towards survival. This it does either by devising methods for reducing the variety with which it is presented, or by seeking to increase its own variety, or, more usually, by doing both at once. In the foregoing table, many of the most familiar devices which management adopts are listed. They would not normally be seen as having much in common with each other. Some are related to personnel policy, other to methods of accounting, and so on. But we detect in all of them a common endeavor. It is the need to attain requisite variety. As has been hinted before, every variety reduction, ipso facto, reduces information and is therefore dangerous. But it must be done. Every variety amplification increases information and leads ipso facto to instability. That risk must also be run. We shall better know what to do and how to undertake variety engineering if we see all these devices for what they are. Keep in mind the associated risks, and above all realize that it is possible to trade one kind of instrument for another. For example, if it is expedient to relax constraints hitherto applied to employees in the, in in sorry, in the interests of an enlightened personnel policy, variety will increase. It may then be possible to avoid overloading in System 5 by reducing variety somewhere else. It is against this background that we should return to algodonics, and especially to all those mechanisms discussed in Chapter 10 in terms of the model drawn from the ascending reticular formation of the brainstem. So far, we have seen in this mechanism what is really a variety generator. If we said... Uh, if we said many filters are operating to reduce variety within the organization, System 5 may easily be lulled into a sense of false security. Special filters would be needed, working on collateral information channels to reinstate requisite variety regarding threats to survival. But now we must look to this strange structure, the core of the brainstem, the climate of management, as a variety reducer. In both the brain and firm, it appears to be the most massive variety reducer of them all. The first hint of this role was carried in the closing paragraphs of Chapter 10. Because the reticular formation transmits algodonic information, that relating to threats, to pain and pleasure, in the extreme case to crisis, the best orientation of managerial structures is towards deciding what at any moment is the right form of variety reduction for the organism as a whole. So despite all our variety engineering, all our plans for what we ourselves should do as creatures with a brain, or for what the firm should do since we are its management, the most massive of the variety inhibitors is essentially self-organizing. 
The mechanics of this device were laid bare by the late Mar Warren McCulloch and his collaborators. Readers are by now alert to the existence of redundancy as a powerful protective mechanism in circumstances where the organization is computing with unreliable components. See Chapter 14. Organizations are collections of decision elements and the channels by which they are connected, the neurons and their processes in the brain, men and their communications in the firm. <clears throat> in the last chapter, it was shown how the constructive employment of apparently superfluous numbers of nodes and channels provides immense protection against error when everything about the system, the nodes and channels themselves, as well as the information in process, stands a finite chance of being wrong. If these nodes and channels are the only components of the system, and if they are already redundant, what other form of redundancy could there possibly be? McCulloch discovered it. His name for what is not a physical but organizational entity was the redundancy of potential command. Think of the anastomotic reticulum, that apparently undifferentiated network con connecting a sensorium to a motor plate. Think also of an intricate managerial process, of which that is a model. Where in all of this is the center or focus of command? There is no simple answer. At this level of intricacy and subtlety, brain-like systems are not organized into a pyramidal a command structure looking like a family tree. No, the command center changes from time to time. Its location is a function of the information available to a given concatenation of cells. It is the information flow that determines which concatenation matters, and that therefore delineates the command center. This is why we call the system self-organizing. Who, who, for example, really decides to buy a quarter of a million pounds worth of highly expensive machinery in the firm? It is not the senior manager who alone is authorized to undertake expenditure on the scale. It is the little group of employees, possibly very junior, which understands the need for this equipment, which has created its appropriate specification, and which has made the unassailable case for its purchase. Admittedly, the case could, could be vetoed by a more senior group, either on the grounds that the money would not be forthcoming, or because some other expenditure has higher priority. But we are not talking about the right of veto, we are discussing intelligent decisions. This decision was really taken at a junior level by a self-organizing group. Now we come to McCulloch's concept. If a command center, if command centers within the reticulum are of this kind, then any concatenation of cells might become a center of decision, depending on the information flow. Call such a, as yet unidentified concatenation, a center of potential command. The redundancy of such centers is a further massive protection to the organization. That assertion can be examined by looking at the situation in which there is no redundancy of potential command. All right, so thoughts on this uh, section here. Steve, go ahead. Um, yeah, what do people think of this? I mean, one reading of this is he's saying that there's a lot of interchangeability between people in the firm and then it's and that's you know both desired so that you have this redundancy as well as you know sort of a lack of specialization and i think um you know a less generous reading of this would be like well that's not true <laughs> you know people have different skills and not everybody can do the same job um so i'm just i don't know just kind of curious what what the response is to this uh shane go ahead 
Well, I think his his thing is it's it's um it, it's a sort of distributed intelligence thing, right? Like it's not it's not like that everyone has the same skills, but that the for, the the organization must be organized in such a way that decision could could realistically come from anywhere, and this this could really just mean democracy. Like it, um, you get these an organization that can take seriously decision or propositions coming from any any part of it. Um, so that you don't need a single committee or a single decision maker to um, to, uh, to to filter everything, right? Um, this I, well, I, mm-hmm. I I think essentially what Beer is saying here is that any cook can govern, but in the capacity that they are a cook, you know, like sometimes the relevant decision is the decision about cooking. And it's right for the cook to govern in that sense, to 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 make the decision. So their individual skills uh, are relevant, like very much so. Their individual skills are relevant, uh, but it doesn't mean that, you know, any person can perform any given role in the organization. He's just saying that the, the site or the locus of governance is actually really anastomotic like it 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 is like you said it's a distributed intelligence if we really think realistically about how decisions are made in an organization and not in terms of an org chart can i just have a quick follow on um yeah but i mean the the it, it also then or i mean it thus requires that you have multiple people that can function as cooks right so you have to have you have to build up your firm with that level of specialized redundancy. And, you know, that's, that's something that I, I wonder how well, you know, the audience he's selling this to would be because that's not what they're going to want to do. They're not going to want to hire three people for every job. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've seen, uh, I mean, I think he gets into this later about, uh, eliminating redundancies and eliminating, uh, reserves or sorry, that was something else I read. <laughs> it's all blurring together. I read something else this week about cybernetics, which was talking about um, the dangers of reducing redundancy and the desire to reduce a d- redundancy because it seems like it's waste. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, we we really see that in you know the neoliberal era massively cutting uh quote unquote, redundant social systems and then leading to just catastrophic results when your once in a half century event or once in a century event comes along, you've got no give, you've got no slack. There's no organization for it. Um, And it's perfectly understandable why an economizing manager would cut that slack. Um, okay, so, uh, let's go to Jake and then Matt. Yeah, I, uh, I think that that kind of thing that you said of, like, it's not necessarily that, like, you know, the political decisions will come from the cooks, but it should be allowed, it should be enabled that they can come from the cooks if, if it, it's deemed necessary. I think that does kind of get into, like, what are the specifics, like, how do you set up organization right where every member could conceivably have a, come to some sort of uh say a political or potential command like how how is it that anyone or any group of people could issue a potential command that is use that is like useful but also like 
followed is certainly a, a question because, you know, especially if you're talking about a capitalist firm, right? Like, you know, you can have the, uh, all the suggestion boxes that you want from the, you know, to get uh, input from like lower levels. But if the management just throws them out or doesn't give a shit, then really, what is it? What does it mean? But I, I think, I think the question of like, like reducing variety and of, of, um, uh, amplifying like the potential variety of like control is like, I mean, it's kind of the core of this, of the VSM. Right. And, uh, it finally gets, finally really, really talks about some examples in like the, what was the last chapter of the book and like that. Um, but I do think I also want to like make sure we touch on that like big chat chart on page 230 and 231 of like all the different ways in which you can yeah, reduce variety and amplify like variety. Um, but yeah, I think, I do think the key is to, yeah, I don't know how to do it in a non-capitalist firm context exactly, or at least not in a, such a direct way, but I think it's really important. And like, right, the world that we want to create is one where the actual like variety of management is not smaller than the variety of input that like the people, the workers can provide, you know, like people doing the work and provide. Um, and I, I like that. I like the little example of the, like who actually bought, who actually decides to buy that machine. I mean, like, you know, when there's, when there's unorganized, when the worker, workers are unorganized, maybe they're not actually deciding it because they'll just continue to work in suboptimal conditions and shitty conditions. But then the more organized they are, the more it's said that they're the ones that decide to buy this because they're the ones that can say like strike if the machine isn't bought or, you know, slow down work if they don't buy it. But I, I think it's an interesting little, like, it's not really the managers that decide to buy that machine. It's like them deciding, well, the trade-off of not buying this machine is worth, uh, is worth the money that we're going to spend on it. Right. Um, so you can, uh, look at this in terms of that table, uh, you have integrated teamwork, which can share knowledge and experience, but lead to a loss of accountability would be the danger of giving too much initiative to uh, low level groups like, oh, maybe they make the decision to buy equipment that they don't need because they think it would be fun to have uh, and they're not accountable. Uh, or you can have the problem of work through henchmen, which amplifies the boss's power and means that it just transmits his faults. Right. That, that, oh, well, that, uh, ability for decision, independent decision is lost. And so you just have bad decisions, uh, being amplified, uh, as they go down the, the org chart, so to speak. Um, Matt and then Shane, and then we'll, we'll need to wrap. Yeah, and uh, you know, I think uh, you know, we, we we can and probably should you know like link it to you know uh, democratic ideals of, uh, of of governance. But I think I think it's also, it's also true on like the level of just like you know, like the purely descriptive like level of just like you know firms as they existed in the UK in the in in the sixties, where like you know uh, the, the 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 number of people is probably pretty restricted. But like, yeah, you know, the, the, there, there are, you know, there's a possibility, you know, for initiatives to come from like, 
you know, different people within a board of directors or, 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 within, or, or within the senior uh, leadership. And uh, uh, that also, you know, the, the, there's, the, there's the level of, um, of deciding things, yeah, where you decide whether you actually do things or not. But like, you know, the, yeah, the, the, you know, in, in the example that he gave of the, of, of the heavy machinery, you know, like the, the, the way it came on like the, the corporate radar, like was yeah, the, 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 the lower level workers. And uh, I was also thinking of like, um, you know, sort of like parliamentary procedure where like, uh, uh, you know, any, uh, any, any, anyone, and, uh, you know, uh, what, uh, can come up with, le- with like a bill to propose or, or, or whatever. But I mean, yeah, like different people are still going to propose different kinds of things. And, uh, uh, you know, like, like, like there's going to be, there's going to be different, like, uh, uh, polls of, uh, of, um, of governance. But I mean, yeah, well, like, like, it, 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 it's just not like a totally top down thing where like a CEO or a prime minister, you know, just like makes all the decisions and then everyone else implements them. There's like a dialectic, dare I say, between, uh, uh, you know, like different people, you know, probably more often, you know, kind of peers with each other on, on some level or another. And, you know, and, and them all like being aware of different things, you know, kind of, uh, in aggregate. Gives like a, gives like a better picture, but yeah, like also you know uh, in uh, um, you know in in communication with with like lower levels. Right, there is a dialectic in the most literal sense, uh, since uh, Parliament is literally a talking shop. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say something. I think fairly similar to what Matt was bringing up that, that there are procedures for this that are fairly well understood. That like it's it this. Um, redundancy of potential command shouldn't be taken to be that like a person just decides to do something and then goes goes and runs off and does it if it affects everything else like i mean if it's the color of the pen you're going to use what well, who gives a shit and we've decided that all you want but um you know I've, I've even i've had the good fortune to work in companies that had processes that were very like this where anyone like any of the engineers can propose um an initiative even very junior engineers can propose an initiative but then it's a matter of group deliberation as to whether to pursue it or not. And that process might involve, like, okay, this is a decent idea, but I want to see more detail. Can you flesh it out a bit? Or, like, um, in a given planning period, there's probably a lot of proposals on the table that, like, people would love to pursue, but there's only so much time. And there's only so much budget. So we have to, like, deliberate and select which possible things. And that, that brings us into that System 3, System 4 stuff again. Um, so I think the, the thing to take away here is that the, the potential for decision-making should be present pretty much everywhere, but that the, the vetting of activities that will be pursued as a group should be done with the group in, you know, ideally a very democratic way. And, and you'd kind of need to steer against the kind of like parliamentary thing of just getting bogged down in bullshit as well. Um, it's, it's, not the, it's, it's not the notion that just doing proposals will solve all the problem. Uh, but, you know, it's possible to do these kinds of deliberative um processes where you know really honestly even the most the most sort of junior members of a, an organization the, mo- the most green engineers can propose really good ideas and then everyone be like oh that actually is a really good idea let's all do that um yeah can be done yeah and these decisions are not even always deliberative right they, they can just be i have the initiative i'm gonna do something mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Or it's just uh, transparently a great idea and everyone just automatically goes along with it, you know? Yeah. Uh, doesn't doesn't raise any uh of the uh the flags, right? The uh algodonic signals. There's some like co op stuff that um kind of foregrounds that kind of thing where it's more like a 
it's like group decision making by like the absence of explicit objection and stuff. I mean, there's there's all kinds of different ways you can design that, but it's like, you know, if you put, if you stick your hand up and it's like, hey, does anyone mind if I paint the wall green or whatever? And it's like, nobody seems to give a shit, so I'm just going to do it. Um, yeah, that's that's all possible. That means you don't spend a lot of time around a boardroom table hashing things out. Um, like uncontroversial decisions are possible where you know just the the, the synapse fires and everything else goes along with it. Yes, and uh, you know, as as Beers pointed out, they're going to kind of be the norm, and it's the exceptions that are going to go up to the higher deliberative bodies. Um, okay, so uh, that's going to do it for this session. We will finish off the chapter next time. Uh, so I'll see you all then. Wonderful. Thank you for participating. See you all soon. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 Bye.